I was, uh, I was speaking this week, uh, maybe it was this week, at some point recently, we were talking about uh, if Park Cities had like a, like a, like a hymn, like uh, something that kind of their official song, what would it be? And, and somebody, somebody said, great is thy faithfulness. Like great is thy faithfulness has kind of been something that's kind of a running theme. And I think that's so important for us as believers to be able to turn to God's faithfulness because oftentimes the things that we deal with are incredibly daunting and overwhelming, incredibly challenging. Even small scale stuff, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I have a task to do, I have a very low threshold for this is overwhelming and I don't wanna do it. Uh, cleaning out closets, I think this comes from my childhood, like I just don't wanna do it. Uh, it's just overwhelming. I don't even know where to start with it. Um, sometimes relationships are like that, where you, you maybe have hurt somebody's feelings and you go to them and you're like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin with an apology. Like it was so stupid what I said or so I don't have a, a way, I don't have a leg to stand on here. I don't even know how to begin to make this up to you, right? But then sometimes you look at like a worldwide problem. Like you think of like war or, or you know, hunger, things like that. Uh, like the potter's house that just spoke. Like I've been to the dump in Guatemala numerous times. It's massive. And they call their, the people that they minister to, they call them treasures. And the reason why they call them treasures is because the people there work in trash so much they've begun to think of themselves as trash. And I don't know how 37 years ago, God empowered people to look at that problem and say, that's not too overwhelming for God. Because like I said, I just, I would look at that and say, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to begin. Well, maybe today we'll, we'll begin somewhere for you. Maybe, maybe today is the day that God is going to start something in your life where, where you're going to learn the power of grace, you're going to experience the power of grace, and you're going to be able to, um, God's going to change your life. We're in John 3.16. Uh, you've probably never read it, probably never heard of it. It's there. It's, a, it's an obscure passage. Um, but we're going to be in John 3.16 today, and I want us to talk about, this is our last uh, sermon on uh, grace, everyday grace. We preach grace every Sunday, so fortunately this is a topic we're not leaving behind. But I want us to talk about how grace helps us to tackle the world, how grace is for the world. And I want to talk about three things that grace does to the world around us. And the first thing is grace saves the world. Grace saves the world. Look at verse 16 of John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. It's a really familiar passage. When you, when you come to a familiar passage as a preacher, you feel like it's really hard to do this justice, right? And people have big expectations. It's like, it's like doing Macbeth, right? Or, or remaking Lethal Weapon. Like people have such high hopes uh, for those things. And yes, I just put Macbeth and Lethal Weapon in the same uh, uh, entertainment category. You're welcome. And so uh, one of the things we can do is we can look at the context. So what's happening is uh, Jesus is meeting with a guy named Nicodemus at night. 
Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees. Uh, he's a part of the ruling council. He's a big deal. And he goes to Jesus at night. And if you've seen this scene in The Chosen, I think it's the first season, it's really well done. I would encourage you just to go watch that scene if you've never seen that, that series. Uh, it's, it's the guy that plays Jesus and the guy who plays Nicodemus do a phenomenal job. By the way, the guy that plays Nicodemus is also Cecil in Mr. Deeds. And so that kind of ruins the scene for me. So go watch Adam Sandler's Mr. Deeds and then go watch the Nicodemus scene. It'll change your, your perspective a little bit. But so they're having this conversation and Nicodemus is trying to figure out who in the world Jesus is. He thinks he's a good teacher. He thinks he's probably sent by God. He's probably not on the Messiah, son of God train quite yet. We know that he gets there because of, of things that happen at the end of the book. And so he starts asking Jesus these questions, and Jesus says, you need to be born again. This is, this is where we get the expression born again Christian. And you need to be born again, and the wind is going to blow wherever it, wherever it does. You've got to be born of water and spirit, and the spirit goes just like the wind wherever it's going to go, and, and all these things. And Nicodemus just fires off the most exasperated question in scripture. He's just like, how can these things be? How is this even possible? And then something happens. Jesus says it happens because the son of man needs to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Now that is an obscure reference. That's from Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're wandering about. And of course they, they, they rebel against God and God sends serpents to uh, attack them. There's a whole bunch of questions there. I get it. And so they return to God, they repent, and God says, fashion a bronze serpent, put it in the middle of camp, and when somebody gets bitten by a snake, they can look at it, and they will be healed. And so what Jesus is saying is, I, the Son of Man, am going to be lifted up like a bronze serpent, but I'm going to be lifted up on the cross, and all who look to me will be saved, not from a, a, a serpent's bite, from, from the spiritual serpent's bite of sin, death, and evil. It's a really beautiful image. And so... Out of this, then, something strange happens, and there's a debate that takes place. There's a debate that takes place around this John 3.16. Maybe you're unaware of it, and I'm probably going to offend some people here, and I'm really excited about that. You can email Jeff about it. <laughs> and what he says is uh, there, there's some debate as to whether or not Jesus is still talking or whether or not John begins to provide commentary on the conversation that just took place. How many of you have red-letter Bibles, and how many of you have John 3.16 in red? Okay, so your editor is making a decision. The person who, who compiled your, your version of scripture is making a decision as to whether or not this is still Jesus speaking. Now, I probably hold a minority opinion, and I would say that Jesus is not still speaking at this point. So I would say John 3.16 is John's commentary on what just took place. And the big reason why I think that is because Jesus is being super mysterious through like verse 15, and then he's all of a sudden being very explicit in verse 16, like very, like more explicit than he's been with his disciples at this point. Now, some of you might be like, you're taking words out of Jesus's mouth. How could you do this? Well, I have great news. There's this great scripture that says all scripture is God breathed. So whether John is writing it, whether Jesus is saying it, whether Moses is writing it, doesn't matter. It's all breathed out by God, and it's all equally important. Jesus' words are not more important than Paul's words, and here's why. Because Jesus is the one giving Paul the words. They're all Jesus' words. Your old Bible should be in red. The whole thing. Because Jesus is the word of God. He's the incarnate word of God. And so I wanted to take that little detour, and the reason why is because we need to learn, again, how to read our scriptures and recognize that all scripture is important and useful for teaching. 
And so we get through all of this. I appreciate you going on that detour with me. We realize that Jesus is talking about the crucifixion, and John is telling us why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to save us. He went to the cross motivated to save us. And the reason why he went is because of love. He went because of love. And his love drove him to essentially do three things. And one was to lay down his life. To lay down his life. There are all sorts of reasons why somebody might lay down their life. A firefighter, a police officer, a a soldier might give their lives out of love for maybe an abstract idea of like patriotism or service. They might give up their lives because they hope that somebody would do the same for somebody that they love. But very rarely, I think, does a police officer or a firefighter or a soldier or somebody lay down their life out of like a sense of personal love for the person that they're sacrificing for. It's usually a sense of duty, right? And so people sacrifice out of a sense of duty. Some people lay down their lives or put their life at risk out of a sense of compassion, right? If, you're, uh, if you find out that you're a match for a kidney or, or a part of your liver, and you're like, sure, I don't know this person, but I'll go under the knife. Like, surgeries are, 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 are safe, right? Medical science is incredibly advanced, but I think any doctor would tell you there's always a slight risk, at least. And so going under the knife is, is a risk. You're, you're putting your life at stake for somebody you don't know. So just kind of a motivation of compassion, but that's not love. That's not a personal affection, It's not the case. Some people will lay down their life for things that they love, their career, their passions. I mean, how many people do you know have have, their health has deteriorated because of how much they've put into the work, how much stress they've put into their work? Marie Curie, the the, the famous uh, scientist, died because of cancer that she acquired likely from the amount of work she did with radioactive materials. She didn't know it, but she laid down her life for her research. And so through all of this, we have to ask, why did Jesus lay down his life? And he laid down his life because of love. He wasn't obligated to do this. It's not a sense of duty to us. God doesn't owe us anything. He does it because he loves us. And because he loves us, he comes not to offer condemnation, although I think he would have every right to do so. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Father doesn't send his son into the world because he's obligated. He sends him in because he loves us. And what the Bible is talking about here is that people uh, uh, are condemned because they reject Jesus as their savior. Now we can talk about sin and we can talk about how uh, there is already kind of condemnation on us as, uh, because of original sin, because of what Adam and Eve did, and we've inherited that. And you might say, Travis, that's not really fair. It's not fair that God should condemn me for things that I did that I didn't know were wrong. It's not fair that God should condemn me for things that, that, uh, my, my, that I've inherited, right? It's not fair that God would condemn me for maybe bad things I picked up from, uh, from people that raised me. It's not fair that God would condemn me because I have an addictive personality that I didn't know about and now I'm stuck in some things and I'm wrestling with them. God shouldn't condemn me for any of that. Now, there are other passages like in Romans that deal with that and if you're doing our dwell reading where we read through a book of the Bible, kind of, we got a new bookmark out, by the way, Acts is coming up. 
You can read with us, but in Romans, it talks about this a little bit. But John is specifically offering a reason why condemnation rests on humanity. And what he's saying is, whether you are condemned already or not doesn't really matter for his argument. It does, but it doesn't matter for his argument. What he's saying is, condemnation generally revolves around the answer to one question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was sent as the Son of God to pay the penalty for your sins? And if the answer is yes and you trust in him, then you are not condemned. If the answer is no, then you are condemned. You're condemned for rejecting who God has sent. You're condemned because you did not accept him as savior. So let's say that we're on an ocean liner. Kind of think early 1900s, Titanic-like. No, we're not on the Titanic. Let's not be on the Titanic. Let's be on the Olympia, okay? So we're, we're crossing the Atlantic, and everything seems fine to us. We're having a lovely voyage. We're first-class passengers. All of us have taken turns doing I'm the king of the world at the front. It's great. That was a Titanic reference. You remember that movie? And so I'll go back to Lethal Weapon. Don't worry. We'll be all right. And so uh, the, the, we think everything's fine. And the, the creator, the, the builder of the boat comes to us, the ship, and he says, we got to get off this boat. It is, it is uh, about to explode or it's about to sink. Things are really, really bad. And we're like, well, it seems fine to us. He's like, no, I've made this. I understand how it works. We are in trouble. We have to get off the boat. Would we listen to him? You see, this is what's happening. The, the creator of the universe is coming to us. And whether or not you feel condemned, or whether or not you feel like you've done something wrong is irrelevant. Things may be great for you. Things may be awesome for you. The creator of the universe, the person who built you, is telling you that something is off about the world that we live in and has infected you and has infected everybody. And you have to get off the boat. We have to, we have to change course. We have to become someone new. We have to be transformed by him. And it is only then that there is no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And so it's love that motivates him. And this is why Jesus saves the world. He saves us because of his love and it's undeserved love. He loves his creation. He loves the world. We've done nothing to earn this. This is what grace is. Grace for the whole world. Grace for the whole world. Everybody. And it's our responsibility as people as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, to show that grace to the whole world. And so we have to look, how did Jesus show that grace? He did it by laying down his life. And so we lay down our lives. We give up of ourselves. We sacrifice so that other people can enjoy the gospel, can enjoy the grace of Jesus Christ. And some of us respond to that and say, well, Travis, am I supposed to just let people walk all over me? Am I just supposed to, to just take whatever comes my way? Am I just supposed to keep giving and giving and giving until I'm destitute? I can't answer that for you. But God can. And this is why the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. This is why we need grace. Because you can't make those decisions. In and of our own wisdom, I don't know when to stop. And odds are I'm going to start, stop way before God ever wants me to when it comes to being gracious to other people. We have to trust the Spirit of God. We have to let his grace motivate us. And then from there, allow, trust him to say, he'll tell me when to, when to stop being walked all over. He'll tell me when I stop forgiving this person. That's what the grace is for. That's what, if Jesus was sent into the world and we are the body of Christ, that means we are sent into the world with a similar mission to his. One of the greatest graces that is offered to the world is the church. 
So grace then, when it, when it comes into the world, when it rescues, when it's here to rescue the world, it does two things. It exposes the evil in the world, but it also empowers the good. Let's talk about how it exposes evil. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I don't know about you, but one of the things I've wondered about as a Christian since I was little was, why doesn't everybody just become a Christian? And I get it now, you know, theologically, like there's sin and rebellion and we're spiritually dead. Like I get that. Like people can't respond to the gospel. I get that. But at the same time, I sit here and I think to myself, man, like it's so appealing. Like, we have the best possible God that you could dream of. He's fantastic. Well, John gives us three reasons here why, why people reject the grace of God. And it, it starts with their nature, it starts with affections, and it ends up with our fears. So one, grace exposes our nature. So look again at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So human beings' nature is to do evil. That's the sin nature in us, okay? That's the original sin. That's what we've inherited from Adam and Eve. Now, I don't mean, and this is, I want to be very clear about this. This does not mean that unbelievers can't do anything good or provide great contributions. Again, somebody made lethal weapon. It means that they can't do something that is appeasing to God. They can't, humanity can't do anything in and of ourselves to make God happy. God has set a standard of perfection with his law, and when we broke that, we can't correct it. We can't go back. We can't unring that bell. It also means that whenever humanity does do something good, and when I say good, I mean in like the sense of like positive for the world, we also have this tendency to corrupt it. Right? So like the internet is an amazing gift. It's an amazing tool. We could have interviewed Laura from, from Guatemala, and she could have been on the screen right here. I mean, how amazing is that? Some people are watching me right now. You're, you're watching me right now. That's amazing, I think. But we've also corrupted the internet. It's a place of abuse. It's a place of, of, of twisted thoughts. It's a place where, where people who want to hurt other people congregate. It's a place of sexual exploitation. We corrupt this beautiful thing. And so our works tend to be evil. We tend to, to do things that, that are evil. And one of the things that makes the world so frustrated is that as the church, we stand here and say, you're never going to appease God that way. And the world around us is like, but we want to appease God on our own terms, with our own way and our own rules. And God says, I'm not impossible to please. I just want you to please me the way that I've told you, which is trusting in the one that I've sent to you, believing in him. And we're like petulant children. We're like, no, God, no, like there's gotta be something. Like we wanna do it in our way. And God's like, no, that's not how this works. And so the world around us gets very frustrated at the church because we have the, the audacity, I guess, to say we have a God who has kind of laid out how he wants to be interacted with. But it's not just that we do evil, it's that the world also, at the heart, loves the darkness that they fall into. Look again at verse 19. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. There's a whole bunch of things that are celebrated in our society and we can run to the romantic stuff we usually do, but I want to think about other things that are celebrated in our society. We love conflict, love it. Any reality TV show you watch, the smallest amount of conflict will be elevated to the biggest battle ever because we love conflict. We want to be a part of that. We love sarcasm. We love criticism. I've said this before, but the reviews of anything that I want to buy or look at, I look at the one-star reviews first. They're the most interesting. They're the most entertaining. I'm guilty. We love criticism and conflict. Social media is a place where, where we curate kind of what people see about us. And then we hide the dark things. In the, nobody, nobody has pictures of them with food poisoning on their, their social media account. It's not happening. How much of our clothes, our technology, our toys are manufactured by people who are virtually enslaved? And we're okay with that. We celebrate the new iPhone. How many of us gloss over the problems that our political favorites have while jumping on the political opponents for the slightest mistake? Y'all, we don't do this because it's just natural for us to do this. We do it because we love it. We have learned to love the soup that we swim in. We love it. Someone commented on the state of affairs. I thought this was really wise. He said, times are bad. Children no longer obey their parents and everyone is writing a book. <laughs> Do you know who said that? A man who lived four decades, who died, excuse me, four decades before Jesus was ever born. This was the Roman philosopher Cicero. And it tells you, he was complaining about everybody writing a book back then. Man, he would really struggle in today's society. <laughs> everybody is writing a book now. Things haven't gotten better in some ways. And it's not because we're incapable, in some ways we are, it's because we love the way things are. We love the darkness. Humanity loves the darkness. But I think the primary reason why grace is rejected is because of fear. Verse 20, for everyone who does the wicked things, does wicked things, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Anybody in the darkness is just afraid of being caught. Just afraid of being caught. It's amazing how much of our lives we keep hidden from other people. I mean, how many times have you uh, wanted to come to the Lord with something or confess something and you're like, he's not going to receive me. He's going to reject me. He's going to be angry at me. And so we stay in the darkness. There was a couple that was uh, trying to lose weight. And so they cut out all their, their, their fast food. They, they really got on it, got on track. They were, they were, but every Sunday, I guess, once a week, they would, um, they would have like a cheat meal and their cheat meal was McDonald's. They loved McDonald's. They're like, we're going we're gonna to have McDonald's. So the, the husband would go to McDonald's and pick up food and then he'd bring it back home to his wife. And they did really well. They lost their weight, they met their goals, and, and, but they still decided like, hey, we're gonna celebrate. And so they went and, and the husband brought back the food and he was like, honey, I am so excited. I'm so proud of the fact that we lost all this weight and it's had such an impact on my life. I didn't even have my secret McChicken on the way home from McDonald's today. And she was like, your secret what now? So the whole time they had been cheating on their diet, he was having like an extra cheating with a secret McChicken that he would scarf down on the way home before he ever got there. 
secret McChicken. How many of us have secret McChickens in our lives that we, you, some of us got like whole chicken coops, right? Things that you keep from people that you love, things that you keep from people who love you, things that you try to keep from God and you think, ah, he doesn't need to know about that. And even though you know he knows, you still kind of have this cognitive dissonance about it. You're like, ah, he doesn't know. You put all these three together, our, our nature, our affections, and our fear, and you have darkness, a life full of darkness. And it's not just, the spiritually dark places aren't just like the developing world countries, then we think, oh, we need to take the gospel to the rainforest and stuff like that. They're dark, some of the darkest places are in our city. One of the darkest places in our city is SMU. The spiritually darkest places. And I'm not just saying that, doesn't mean it's a bad institution, doesn't mean you shouldn't send your kids there, it's a great school. It's a spiritually dark place. And I know that because every minister I've ever talked to that works there talks about how spiritually dark it is. And so if SMU can have spiritual darkness, what about your home? What about your office? What about places like that? Is there a darkness there? I guarantee you there is. And there's darkness there because it's our nature to, cre- to, to, to desire it. That sin nature still props up. Even if, even if you're a believer, it still crops up. So we still make it. We still love it. We still find it comforting sometimes. And we're still afraid of being exposed, even though we've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And you will never defeat the darkness on your own. You'll never will yourself through it. You'll never struggle through it. You have to have grace. You have to have God's grace to empower you to defeat the darkness. It's the only thing that will overcome the darkness in the world. It's the only thing that will overcome the darkness in your world. It is grace. So grace exposes darkness, but it also empowers good. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Verse 21 is talking about uh, two ideas. One, the person who does what is true. What does it mean to do what is true? To do what is true, uh, uh, in John's gospel, uh, Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so to do what is true is to follow Jesus, to accept him, to listen to his teachings, to do what he says to do, to live your life according to his commandments. A person that, that is following Jesus doesn't do something because it feels good. They don't do something because it makes the most amount of sense. They don't do something because it has the best profit margin. They do it because Jesus has commanded them to do it. That's a person who does what is true. And the reason why they do it is also seen in the text, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. So many of us highlight our good things, our accomplishments, what we do well in order to promote so people think good things about us and we can kind of hide the dark things that we do back here. So often we just use our good deeds as a smokescreen for the evil that we have going on in our life. But we need grace. We need God's grace. We need God's mercy in the midst of this. So what does this look like? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 through 7. We're not going to go there. We do not have enough time to cover the entire Sermon on the Mount. But in this sermon, he starts with the Beatitudes. And then he says that we are a city on a hill. The kingdom of God is like a city on a hill. And its light shines out to the entire world. And so for us to be this beacon of light to the entire world, he tells us then what to do. And he starts going through the commandments. And he starts elevating them. And so he says, if you're going to be a follower of mine, it's not enough just not to murder. You can't hate people. 
It's not enough not to commit adultery. You can't lust. It's not enough not to lie. You have to have such integrity that when you say yes and when you say no, people believe you. It's not enough just to love your neighbor. You need to love your enemy too. It's not enough just to pray. You need to pray in a way that glorifies God and not yourself. It's not enough just to to fast. You have to fast in a way that nobody thinks you are spiritually better than anybody else. And the list goes on and on and on with amazingly beautiful and terrifying things. Because the person who is faithful to Jesus Christ does not do what is righteous because it is externally righteous. The faithful person to Jesus Christ isn't concerned about external righteousness. They are concerned about an internal transformation of the heart. And you see, external morality, which is really all the world is concerned about, is just another shade of darkness. It's just a different shade of dark. But in order for us to do the truth, in order for us to to walk as Jesus has called us to walk, we need grace. And more than that, you've got to be transformed. It's grace that transforms us. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at what Jesus is saying here and you think to yourself, yeah, I could do that. this This is a great checklist of like being a moral purpose. You're out of your mind. You're crazy. Nobody can do those things. Nobody can, can, can not hate somebody in their heart. Drive in Dallas for like five minutes. The asphalt is the stumbling block. We need someone to change us, to transform us. And this is why Jesus died. Because we needed somebody He went to the cross because he was the only one who could keep the commandments, not just as they were written in Exodus and Leviticus, but the way that they were intended to be kept, the way he describes them in his Sermon on the Mount. He's the only one who could keep them. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a checklist of morality, you're going to be just like me looking at a closet to clean out. You're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be crushed, and you're going to be defeated. But if you look at that as a propulsion into God's grace and his mercy, you are going to thrive. But you're going to see a God who desires a transformation and has given us the means of transformation through his son. And so it doesn't become a checklist of morality. It becomes this, this way to view your life. And you look at yourself and you're like, Jesus, I am so lustful. I need you. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know why this season of my life I'm struggling so much with this. But I am. Please forgive me. Bring healing and light into my life. I don't want to be in the darkness anymore. Jesus doesn't recoil from that. He's like, yes. That's why I died. So you would know what to come with me with. That's why I preached this sermon. Grace isn't this thing that you go back to one time to get justified, to get your ticket to heaven, and then you never come back again. It's a fountain you continually draw from. This is the only way you're going to change. It's the only way the world changes. Is grace has to empower what we do. The world doesn't need more morality. That's why the the world is so frustrated with the church. Because we've harped on morality for so so long. The world needs grace. It needs grace. To be that city on the hill. A light that exposes darkness. That that, that empowers good. There's There's a new part of the city being built today. I'm really excited about it. This new city on the hill that God is building. Uh, the, the Spanish language ministry is starting a, a, a campus at Bachman Lake. And our tendency is to say, oh, they are starting this. 
but that's not accurate. Uh, Spanish language ministry is a part of our church. We are starting this. We are doing this. And so uh, we have been at Bachman Lake for, for a long time now, uh, doing Bible studies, uh, doing small groups, uh, doing a, a service once a month. And then this week, this Sunday, Rolando and his team are starting a weekly service out there every single week. Satellite campus. I'm so excited about it because it's just, again, the light going out into the darkness. So what I want us to do is I want us to, as we close, I want us to pray uh, for Rolando and pray for his team and just pray that God would bless that campus. And then we're gonna close in a little bit of worship and then uh, we'll send you out after that, okay? Father God, you have seen fit in your grace to make this, this church a place of uh, lingual diversity. We speak English, we speak French, Sorry, French, Spanish. <laughs> Maybe somebody does. But God, you have seen fit to bless us in such a way that we are able to reach people who speak a different language. And so God, I thank you for Rolando. I thank you for his team. I thank you for the way that you have gifted him and the passions that you've given uh, that part of our church. And God, I pray that the technology today would work flawlessly. I pray that it would be uh, that dead people would come to life today. Spiritually dead people would, would be born again, that, that the light would go out from that place like a lighthouse on the shores of a lake calling people home. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May you bless them as they work. Let us be a part of it and celebrate it. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.